So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money, episode 1425, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi, and I'm a little under the weather. You're going to be hearing a replay in a little bit, but I wanted to just pop in and at least say hello. How have you been? How was your week? I'm actually in Denver right now. As you hear this, I am heading to a stage to talk about when she makes more. My book from many years ago, which is still proving relevant, how to thrive when you are uh, the female tire earner in your relationship. It's for NAPFA, has invited me to speak to their financial planners, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors. I feel a lot better than I did earlier in the week when I couldn't even get out of bed, but my doctor says I have a upper respiratory infection, a sinus infection, so she's put me on some antibiotics and hopefully that this time next week we'll be back to normal. But I just wanted to say hello and two things before we hit replay. One, I want to pick our reviewer of the week and I want to brag about my latest column because it's important and I think it could help a lot of us. Firstly, Let's go to the iTunes review section and pick our reviewer of the week. This person will get a free 15-minute money session with me. And this week, we're going to say thank you so much to 8,000 Steps Before Breakfast. 8,000 Steps Before Breakfast. I'll be lucky if I get that across a couple days living in the suburbs these days. This person calls the show smart, engaging, and I appreciate Farnoosh's thoughtful take on financial literacy. She invites a range of guests who address a a fascinating range of topics to get one's financial house in order and build wealth. I learn something new every time and often continue to think about the episodes weeks after listening. Thank you so much. Please get in touch. Send me an email, farnushatsomoneypodcast.com. Let me know you left this thoughtful review and I will be back in touch with a link for you to pick a time for us to talk about whatever you want to talk about, really anything. This week's hot mic column on CNET, you're not a loser for having financial fears. That's right. The column is all about how we need to respect and lean into our money anxiety because the culture, whether you're scrolling on Instagram, you're reading a self-help book. It's all about be fearless, do it scared, ignore your fears. And we know that there are all those sayings like fear nothing but fear itself. I'm here to say that feelings matter. All of the feelings matter, including the hard ones like fear. When it comes to your money fears, the problem with ignoring these money fears that you have, whether it's anxiety over worst case scenarios, talking to a partner about money, coming up with savings to afford an unexpected life event, these fears matter. And if you ignore them, the experts who've come on this show, from Dr. Ellen Vora to Chantel Chapman, who's the co-founder of Trauma of Money, they've told us that it can lead to things like paralysis and overreacting, which can be costly. And so taking a beat and saying, why is this fear showing up? What is it really trying to tell me? Is it real? Is it fake? I offer some steps for how to face this fear healthily, how to probe it and get to 
a really good move that you probably should be making, whether that's rewriting your money story or walking through a worst case scenario and realizing, yeah, I probably do need to save a little bit more or I need to go and buy some insurance. How to take the appropriate action based on what your financial fears may be telling you. That's the column this week. I'll put the link in our show notes. And if you missed any of the episodes this week, I encourage you to go back. We had on Wednesday, Adam Ariema, my friend and editor at Next Advisor, launching what is hopefully going to be an annual celebration of the new voices in personal finance. It's called Next Up. It's a list of 25 fresh, diverse voices in the money space. He talks about how they made the selection. I was on the advisory board as well. So very proud of this rollout. And then throughout the coming weeks, we're actually going to hear from some of these honorees. On Monday, we talked to Jacent Wamala, who wiped $90,000 worth of debt in just three years. How she did it, she breaks it down in that episode, episode 1423. All right, without further ado, I'm going to hit replay. We're going to talk about how to secure your own maternity leave when you're a freelancer, self-employed, selecting a 529 plan for your kid, and rolling over that 401k do's and don'ts. Thanks for bearing with me. I promise to be back next week with new questions. So keep them coming. You can email me, Farnoosh at SoManyPodcast.com. You can DM me on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. Have a great weekend, everybody. Be well. First up is Mandy. Farnoosh, besides OBGYN and hospital expenses, what other uh, expenses, costs should be considered for a baby delivery? Very smart to review your insurance coverage ahead of time before you go in for your delivery, whether it's scheduled or you're just going to go when it's time to go. I would even suggest asking your OBGYN this very question, Mandy. So I'll, I'll help you with some considerations, but definitely talk to your doctor about this too, because FYI, your doctor, whether it's your OBGYN, your dentist, your eye doctor, uh, I learned this important fact reading Consumer Reports one day, and it is this. Your doctor takes an oath to give you the best medical advice and to do what is best for you. We know this, but this also includes something we don't always know, being transparent with you about what things will cost and how you may be able to better afford treatment or care. So in other words, your doctor is also your fiduciary right? Your advocate, your financial advocate. So everybody listening, um, never hesitate to talk to your doctor about, for example, anticipated bills, how much something is going to cost and alternative ways to get the same great care within your budget. So whether it's a prescription, is there a generic form that you recommend that is safe, that is effective, but a lot more affordable? Is there a surgery that I can get that, you know, whatever you're telling me this is going to cost $20,000. I, my budget's $3,000. What can we do. I'll tell you in a quick example with my dentist. I may have shared this story before, but it begs repeating, which is this. I had to get, I think it was a root canal or something, and it wasn't super urgent. And I was also, uh, it was towards the end of the year when, as we know, your insurance renews at the top of the year and your coverage starts over at the beginning of the year. So you have more coverage at the beginning of the year than probably at the end of the year, because by then, assuming you've, you know, you've used up some of your allowances. So all this to say that I was going in for procedure, a dental procedure, and it was going to be thousands and thousands of dollars. And I said, hey, doc, can we make this less expensive somehow? What can we do? Literally, I I didn't know. I just I just said, what can we do? This is kind of a 
kind of crazy. And he goes, you know, here's what we can do. We can split this procedure up over this year and next year. So it was November. And he said, you know, normally I'd have you come and do the follow-up procedure in six weeks, but let's make it eight weeks. It's still safe. By then it's January and your insurance has re-upped and it will cover more of this expense. So we're going to go from, you know, paying thousands of dollars to maybe just under a thousand dollars. I said, brilliant. Let's do that. Would never have happened had I not spoken up and said to my doctor, hey, I want to save money. What do you suggest? And that's the thing to keep in mind. While your doctor may know that they're there to be your best advocate, they may not always proactively say, hey, there's a cheaper substitute or a cheaper way to do something that is is going to you know, be just as effective, just as healthy and, and safe. So do that due diligence anytime you're in for a procedure or a costly, for any cost with related to your, your health and your medical expenses. Now back to you, Mandy, because I've been through now two baby deliveries. Uh, so talk to your OBGYN about this. I've been saying that that's a hard, uh, <laughs> it's hard to say OBGYN. Some of the costs that the hospital may charge that I know personally related to a delivery, one, your stay. Obviously, you're going to have to stay in the hospital to deliver this baby, but what your insurance will cover may be specific to your insurance policy. Not all insurance policies cover the same amount of time. So this is important because when you check in to deliver your baby, sometimes that's when the clock starts. And that's why my OBGYN said to me, Farnoosh, don't come to the hospital immediately when you're experiencing like your first contraction. Better to wait until your contractions are really close or if your water's broken, because at that point, you need to obviously get, you need to get some attention. This is the time to come to the hospital. Financially, also, it's important to keep that in mind because if you come in any sooner, that clock has started now and your, your two-day stay is now maybe a three-day stay when it really doesn't have to be. And you're going to get billed for that extra day because your insurance company says we only cover, say, 48 hours. So this is important because a, an extra day in the hospital could be thousands of dollars and that could be out of pocket. And listen, when you're delivering a baby and the, the hours before and the days after, like you're not in the mindset of like, let me go and ask the hospital questions or look into my insurance policy. This is the time to do it when you're anticipating having a baby. Um, the other thing I want to talk about is another personal experience, which is that the night I went into the hospital for my first kid to deliver, because my water broke, so my doctor said, come on, come on in. It was 12.30 in the morning. The front door to the hospital, Upper West Side, closed because it was 12.30, but the emergency room was open and they directed everybody to the emergency room at that hour. So we went, obviously, we followed directions. And then weeks later, when I got the itemized bill from my doctor and the insurance company had paid for almost you know, 100% of it, it had said there was a line item, entry through the emergency room. And I think it was $1,800, which luckily the insurance company paid. But if I was the insurance company, I would have questioned that. Like, why are you charging patients this cost? There was no other way to enter the building. So I'm being punished because you chose to not service the main front door. That 
is, you know, that that's the kind of scrutiny that I think um, isn't happening or some insurance companies do it, though. So depending on how scrutinizing your insurance company is, you got to watch out for these things. And um, just if it does fall on your lap and it does become something that you have to pay out of pocket, you know, those are some red flags. And I would assume that you could contest to that because there wasn't really an alternative. It, it's just kind of a gotcha cost. I think it's my opinion. Luckily, again, my insurance company paid for it, but I was like, whoa, imagine if I didn't have insurance or I didn't have an insurance company that was graceful enough to cover that cost. So anyway, go back and talk to your doctor about this. Your doctor has delivered hundreds and hundreds of babies and has probably faced a lot of questions like the ones you're going to ask and has way more tips and advice to give you than I will ever be able to. So talk to your doctor. Next up is Kat. She emails, you can email me too, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. Farnoosh, wondering if you have any advice on how to prepare for maternity leave as a self-employed individual. I'm seven months pregnant with our second kid and I'm getting nervous taking time off when the baby arrives this fall. Also, I'm in the process of moving into a new house and our expenses will be increasing as my income will also be disappearing for a while. Any tips are welcome. All right, Kat, again, I was in this boat too. I was self-employed for baby number one and baby number two. This does take some planning to the best of your ability. Number one, you have to look at the math and review your savings. How much time you're gonna be able to afford without working is gonna come down to the math, right? Looking at your savings, what's coming in, what's going out, and looking at how much ideally time you'd like to take off. What is that going to cost to kind of keep the household running to also cover some of these expenses? Try to anticipate some of those housing costs. You might want to put off some of the work that you want to do on the home that's not necessary or urgent for maybe year two or year one or year two, not right away. Because yeah, I agree. Like it's a lot to be not working and then having those costs so just being really clear and maybe even overestimating what you're going to need so that you have that padding uh, as you go into your maternity leave. I took off about eight weeks and I anticipated it. I, I saved for it. And um, I'll, uh, the second advice is to prepare your clients for your absence. Managing your client expectations as far as when you're going to be offline is very important, but so that you can get back into the swing of things smoothly, start to make some appointments and schedule meetings for month two and three or four or whatever, you know, whatever you anticipate wanting to have off. The week after that, the two weeks after that, start making a couple of appointments to ease yourself back into the workflow. And then it's also great for your clients to know, hey, we're going to talk to you in eight to 10 weeks and they can plan for that and they're not going to drop off the face of the earth. So you can pick up where you left off. I booked a conference. I went to FinCon after I think it was two and a half months of delivering my first baby. And I considered it kind of like a coming out party. It was a great way to you know, see people again and uh, be inspired. It's where I got the inspiration to start my podcast, believe it or not. I kind of went in with open mind and uh, listened and, you know, eight weeks is not a lot in the grand scheme of life and your career, but when you're self-employed, it can definitely feel like forever. And when you're out of that 
period, it, it, there is a bit of a, you know, a reacclimation. And so first review the savings that you have. Maybe you learn that you want to pare back some of your expenses now to create more of a cushion for you while you're away from work or that you have enough and you can have more peace of mind. But you have to look at the numbers. It can be scary, but do it now. You've got months before this new arrival and I wish you and your family all of the best luck and health, smooth delivery. And thank you for trusting me with your question. Next is Kate on Instagram. Kate or what not is her handle. Kate's baby is one and she and her partner want to own, they own a home, she says, but the schools are not great. We can afford to upgrade now. Should we buy now or wait it out? You know what I'm going to tell you. Kate or whatnot, is go back to the Monday episode and listen to Alex talk through some of these considerations that these homeowners right now, or I should say prospective homeowners looking to buy should consider before they do and to decide whether to do it now or later. This sounds like you're in that camp, um, but your baby's also only one year old. And I don't really sense a huge urgency to move yet. Kindergarten is probably when your school district begins accepting enrollment and you have a few years before that happens. So in the meantime, you're probably going to have to lean on private alternatives like private pre-K or daycare, which you might like in your neighborhood. And, And so this idea that you have to work quickly may not be the reality in your case. And that's a good thing because that buys you time to plan and think and, hey, maybe we, I don't know, rent out our home our existing home and go rent in another town where the school districts are better because you may realize that renting affords you more liquidity, more flexibility. I don't know what you'll end up deciding, but I think that when you have money plus time, that equals the opportunity to really think things through and not move with this adrenaline. And and just personally, I'll put in a personal story here. When we were living in Brooklyn, I didn't love the public schools there either. And I had this in my mind that at some point we were probably going to leave and go to a suburban area where schools were free and much more resourced, especially for him. My son needs extra help at school. We did private school for a little bit, but then ultimately I did the math. and I said, you know, we could go to private school for the rest of his education here, or we could move and then school's free. And we have a million dollars waiting for us uh, in retirement. (laughs) So that math to me was very clear cut. And you may discover the same thing that maybe you love this area so much. You love your home. You want to do private school for a little bit. And maybe that'll work out for you financially instead of moving because moving is not going to be free. It's not going to be, I should say, um, without its costs. And so you may decide that it's better for your family to stay put and look for a good private school instead. All right, next up is Bedazin on Instagram. Guidance for selecting a 529 plan, Farnoosh? All right, love these straightforward questions. Once in a while, we do get them. And last week, someone asked about stock splits. I like to just sort of, you know, go into definition mode and practical straightforward advice mode, which isn't always emotional. Let's back up. What's a 529 plan for those of you who are maybe new to this? This is essentially a state-sponsored tax-advantaged investment account that helps parents and families save for their dependents' college education. Sometimes you can put the 529 in your own name, uh, but most cases it's for the children. And the way the money is invested 
invested. Usually they're invested in target date funds, which become less risky as you get closer to your goal or closer to the point where you want to use that money. And the question is, how do you pick one? So they're state-sponsored, meaning every state has a 529 plan, but whether you live in Nebraska or Idaho or Pennsylvania or New York, you can choose whatever state's plan you want. I say the first step is to look at your own state's plan because sometimes there is an advantage to investing in your own state's plan. As a resident of that state, you may receive some state tax benefits, okay? So your contributions may be tax deductible within that state, okay? So check that out. I know New York is like that um, and some other states. If you wanna invest in the New York plan, but you live in Idaho, you may not get that tax benefit, right? That state tax benefit benefit because you're not a tax paying resident of New York. After that, you could look at all of the states and see what makes the most sense. There are two websites I'd recommend you check out. One is College Savings Plan Network and the other is savingforcollege.com. Both sites are hubs for information on 529 plans and they provide detail, state-by-state listings of plans, their features, in some cases their historical returns if you're interested in learning about which funds and which states have done the best historically. So that's how you can go about choosing a 529 plan. You can also open one up directly through that state's website. Every state has a website for that 529 plan. Okay. All right. Last but not least, the real Claudia Scott. When you separate from your job and you roll your 401k into an IRA, does it go in as cash? All right, Claudia, very good question. It's a fair question because we know that when we contribute to individual retirement accounts from, say, our checking accounts, when it's a cash transfer from your bank account, the money goes in as cash into the IRA, and then you have to, you know, essentially pick your investments. Robo-advisors, however, will usually do the work for you. So you could go to any robo-advisor, any automated investment platform, open up an IRA, then you before you transfer the cash over or or maybe even after you tell it where you like your risk tolerance your goals all of that and it automatically creates a portfolio strategy for you and then takes your money and puts it throughout that portfolio strategy but sometimes the money just sits in cash and then you have to go and manually pick your investments with a 401k rollover though the idea is that you're rolling over directly from like investments to like investments in the new IRA. It's not going to be necessarily apples to apples because 401k plans usually have their own breed of investments, their own brand of investments. But you, if you're investing in like an S&P 500 fund in your 401k, that exact brand of S&P 500 fund may not be in that IRA, in that IRA but rest assured there is a broad market index fund that you could buy and you always want to keep an eye on the process. Most important that you're not getting a check in the mail when you're doing a direct rollover, the money should never hit your bank account. If it does, I'm sorry to say it's possibly considered a early withdrawal, you pay taxes, you pay penalty. I mean, it's it's not what you want to have happen. So it's important to just stay on top of this. And these days, a lot of it is just done automatically and it's done virtually and you never have to you know, be burdened with a lot of time spent on this. But check, is my money actually now invested or is it sitting in cash? And that is a wrap, everybody. Thank you so much for joining 
love getting your questions. You can email me, you can Instagram me. And remember, we have a newsletter every week. Subscribe. We have the link down in the notes. And if you're watching us on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button, share with a friend and leave your questions and comments below. We'll try to make it happen for the next week. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope your weekend is so money. 